Well, good morning. I learned a couple things at our quarterly meeting last Sunday um, that I, I, I wasn't quite fully aware of, but one of the things that I had mentioned when I was talking to the group at the end of the services was I thought I did a heroic thing because I parked way back in the corner and I said, you know, we need to kind of recognize that we need to give some of those better spaces to the guests who are coming. And then um, I realized soon after that, um, someone had made me quite aware of the fact that in between services, there were like only two spots available and a number of people parked illegally. And they said, it's not really a matter of where you park on this lot. Some of you who have been here know this. <laughs> so I parked over a street over this today. We are in that kind of situation as we come to the holidays, but as a church, you look around, you might say, well, this isn't really full, but we're full in all other areas throughout the church, and we even have people at Gleason Lake. So, again, some of you who can, if you're able, to um, leave room and kind of move to allow others to park in this lot, especially people who are guests and are coming and visiting. This isn't for those of you who have come for the last year. You get kind of a free pass for a while. Um, but I just want to encourage you to remember that as we move into the holiday season. The other thing I noticed was that our income as a church goes like this, and then December goes like this. I thought, wow, that's interesting. Um, I only say that because I realize that as a congregation, one of the things that um, God does is he has blessed people, some of you, in the situation where you can help us at the year end. So I encourage you again to pray now and how God might, um, in some cases, say, here is a way. God has blessed me here, and I want to return that back. Let's just pray and ask God's, uh, his spirit to speak through um, his word. Father, we thank you. And we open our hearts before you and, and ask that you would fill us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll tell you a little story. I, uh, it was like, it was around Oscar time, the Oscar weekend this last year, and our family had an opportunity. We went out to Los Angeles, and the whole reason we went out there is because my daughters, one of them specifically, had wanted so badly to go to an Oprah show. So every once in a while she would kind of see if she could get those free tickets to go. Well, all of a sudden one day it popped up and we got a ticket. And then all of a sudden she got two and then she got four. And I thought, well, I'll go with the family on this. So we went out there. We had just a great time on that weekend. And <clears throat> kind of the, the uh, capstone of it was we were going to, you know, go to this Oprah show in L.A. And so uh, we, um, I live with three women, okay? My wife and two daughters, 21 and 19, and, and, uh, or 22 and 20, I think it is. Anyway, um, so we're up at 3.30 in the morning, standing in a parking lot to get the best seats for the Oprah show. Me and about one million women. And, <coughs> and I'm standing there, and, and they have these rules, you know, you have to have... You can't wear denim and you know, all these different things. And we're there on time and we're thinking we're going to get some of the best seats. We'll be in the second row. This will be really fun. Hopefully Oprah will be giving out cars. And, uh, <laughs> and all of a sudden we're standing there and, and they start making, changing the rules on us. And, and these people who were in jeans get this free pass to come up to the front. And they had special cards and they, they didn't get there on time. And... And we see our spots going further and further back. And what makes it worse is we finally get on these buses. We go to this place. We go into the, to where this theater is. And, and they don't even care whether you stood in line at 3.30 in the morning or not. They just start siphoning you off. And we get up on the fourth level. And I'm going, this isn't fair. And we were upset. And we, were, we did all the things right. We were kind of the good guys. And we lost. 
You ever felt that way? That's kind of what this psalm is about when you look at Psalm 73. It's a psalm, whether Asaph himself really wrote this or whether it was one of the psalms of a group of psalms that were dedicated to Asaph. It's one of these psalms that, that begs the hard question. And, and, you know, my little stint last year of unfairness measures nothing compared to what you may have felt or others feel so often before God. And they just go, it just isn't right. It isn't fair. A mother who weeps outside a courtroom where her daughter's murder has been just released on a legal technicality. And she pleads, is there no justice? Or a father who struggles to feed his family by working hard and doing the right thing, but when he thinks of those who are wealthy by illegal means, he wonders, what's the point of trying to do what is right? I mean, nice guys really do finish last after all. Or a widow who sits beside a freshly dug grave and sobs, it's not, it's, it's not fair. Why couldn't the drunk driver have been killed instead of my husband? He didn't do anything wrong. Ever had those kind of thoughts? Have you ever thought, what's the good in being good? As you watch another person manipulate and lie and and cheat and cut corners, they ambitiously work the system and play the people around them while while you in your own way seek to be honest and fair and you seek to do it God's way and And as you do it God's way, you continually find, like I did, that each separation of the line got you further and further back. You you encountered more pain and more suffering. And then you begin to wonder, maybe crime does pay. What's so good about being good? I'd venture to say everybody's felt that at some point, if you're honest. And it's exactly how he felt. And the cry of his heart was basically... In words that I put it is, why do the good guys seem to lose? God, I've been following you. I've been seeking to do what's right. And it seems that when I do this, it seems that I get further behind. I look around and I kind of have to ask you, what's up? Well, the first thing I'm going to share with you, and I'm going to kind of go through some just titles over these sections. And then I want to just share four what I would say is lessons that he learned and derived from this struggle that he had. But I just want to share with you in, in this walk of trying to, to know God and to live a life that is pleasing to him and, and to live in a way that brings um, good to other people, you will struggle. And those struggles are real. It's really what you see in these first three verses as spiritual struggles are real. And to think the Psalms are so helpful, I a lot of times encourage people to read the Psalms because the Psalms are these honest dealings of the heart of a person that cries out in the midst of fear or anger or they're frustrated or disappointed or they're full of doubt. In a sense, I ask as I look at these first few verses, what happens when faith is tested, when Proverbs become just platitudes? When faith erodes to doubt. Verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Surely, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's a proverb that he was quoting and beginning with. And in, and in many ways, I think this proverb had become real to his heart and soul, but he begins it there as a conclusion in one sense, but also as a way of saying, this was at one point just a platitude. 
This was at one point just something that, you know, sounded good and it didn't have any ring to it to me any longer. Because he says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. This proverb is basically God is good to those who are committed to him. In fact, the idea of pure in heart in verse 1 is, is literally this idea that those who sincerely and honestly strive to live a godly life. It's especially true after someone, I think, comes to put their faith and their trust in Christ. And when they first do that, they have this incredible, usually when you, when you come out of a struggle and you come out of a, a time of, um, of personal search and, and longing and, and, and God somehow intervenes and he, he meets you and you meet him. And, and it's really amazing, even though you may have other struggles, this fresh awareness of who God is to you creates a sense of euphoria, this sense of just walking with God. And you walk with God. And after a while, as you walk with God and you continue to do good, you come a time, a point, a, 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 upon times in your life where that newness kind of wears off and you begin to start wondering. And you begin to start doubting. As he says here, he began to fall from his faith. My feet almost stumbled. And since I was walking through life and I almost fell, I hit a patch of ice. And he was struggling to keep his foothold. He was on the verge of a fall. What I want you to note, first of all, just in looking at those first few verses, is that doubt is real. Every honest believer will go through periods where your faith is tested. And there will be times where you'll wonder, you'll lose your footing. But I want to share with you, here is the good news when you read the Psalms, when you read something like this. The good news is that God is big enough even to handle your doubt. God is able to take you where you're at in your fear, in your frustration. He's able to take you in your disappointment, in those crying out of your heart to God, and He's able to stand with you and to be with you, and it's okay. The crises of faith are really designed often by God. He allows us to go through those times because in that process, when he, when he removes the props from our life so that we begin to see and, and, and experience these things, we have to hold on to or call out to or seek one thing and one thing only. And that's not the good things that God provides, but the good that's in the God that we came to. I found it really interesting. I was reading this last September... And it, it says, it was in the uh, Star Tribune, and it, it, it says, Mother Teresa's letters reveal her spiritual struggles. And, you know, I always thought, well, you know, Mother Teresa, I mean, obviously, here's the person who gave up everything, and I'm sure that she, as she walks through life, God's just with her. And then I, I read this. It says, in 1942, Mother Teresa made a vow not to refuse Jesus any, anything. Starting in 1946, she experienced several mystical encounters with Jesus, whom she called the voice, asking her to serve the poorest of the poor. She says in a letter, I came to India with the desire to love Jesus as he has never been loved before. Isn't that a great ambition? I left everything. I went to the poorest of the poor as he had called me. And I came to India with the desire to love Jesus as he has never been loved before. And she was a, a woman passionately in love with Jesus. Yet no sooner did Mother Teresa start her work in the slums of Calcutta than she began to feel an intense absence of Jesus. A state that lasted off and on until her death. 
according to her letters. And they didn't even want to publish these letters because they wanted to keep this image of this, this saint who didn't have any struggles. And I'm really glad they published them. In a letter estimated from 1961, Mother Teresa wrote, Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. When pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God. The torture and pain I can't explain. There are a few, says Martin, the author of this book of letters, who have suffered such an extended dark night, but Martin also stressed that Mother Teresa's belief in God never wavered. Just a feeling of connection to Jesus. There are times in your life when you will feel this sense of of aloneness you'll feel this sense of why in the world i have done all these things and god you just didn't come through for me the psalmist felt that but you know i have to share with you something as you go through spiritual struggles spiritual struggles can also deepen by our own natural responses okay you can go through a spiritual struggle but i have found that doubt can deepen through my, through my own my own sin and my own weakness through what comes naturally to me in fact we can at times be our worst enemy when we go through those times of darkness the psalmist his spiritual struggle became inflamed because he began to compare his situation look at verse 3 He said, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious of the arrogant. Continually, it says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Isn't it interesting that when you begin to move into what I call envy and comparison, when you begin to start moving into self-pity, I like self-pit because you dig your own pit in a sense, all you see is that which is unfair. All you see is is the blessing that others are having. All you see is this person who's walking with God and they just seem to have no struggles, right? All you see is the person who seems to be not caring one bit what God uh, has to to say to his life and and is out doing their own thing and you just see them in some terms getting wealthier and more um, better connected and all the things that go with, with seeming to move through life rather easily. It could be any number of things I think caused this person's faith to falter. I imagine his envy didn't start just out of envy and he didn't move into self-pity just out of those two things. Probably something started that to happen. It could have been as simple as just the weariness of doing good. You ever been it? You just keep doing good, you keep doing good, but as you keep looking out and you keep looking out and it just doesn't seem like you're getting ahead. It could have been as simple as the hypocrisy of the righteous or He could have looked at the suffering of the innocent or the loss of a loved one. It could be that there was a financial setback. There was marriage difficulty or a divorce, a wayward child, or in some way a hope unfulfilled. Something caused that to slide. And it says he began to envy. And it says he looks at this and this is what he sees and he gives a big really what i call a quick picture of the benefits of being bad okay if, if verse four and five he's looking at them going they have no struggles their bodies are healthy and strong they're free from the burdens common to man they're not plagued by human ills they don't have troubles they seem to die painless deaths 
Verse 6, therefore, pride is their necklace. They close themselves with violence. The idea is that they begin to walk in this sense of self-assurance and and the self-sufficiency that they actually wear it like you would wear jewelry. It's their bling in a sense, right? And he even says they clothe themselves with violence. I don't think he means so much that they go around actually murdering people, but they wear manipulation and intimidation and all those kind of things in order to get what they want and they need. They wear those things like you would wear clothes. It's just so natural to them. It's second nature. Verses 7 through 9, he continues to paint the picture. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds, they know no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Success has made them self-assertive, proud, and they, in a sense, have no regard for God or for others. They may give lip service even to God. And they boast about what they do. A lot of times we like to kind of remove that and say that's someone way out there. It doesn't have to be. It can be someone living right among us. Verse 10, therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Now, this is really a difficult verse to translate. But in my mind, I think what they're saying here, therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Their unquestionable outward success has even created a following people who acclaim them, approve of them, and they actually flatter them. The picture that in this verse is a picture of a, of a camel that would be in the desert when it comes to an oasis. And camels have this incredible ability to gulp up gallons and gallons and gallons of water. They, they just can keep, you would think they could, it would stop at some point, but it just keeps going. They're like black holes, you know, they just keep and his picture here is this picture of people who are like black holes who can never get enough attention, praise, power and external rewards. If I were to translate it, be people flatter them and they just drink it in and drink it in and drink it in. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Does the most high have knowledge? I don't think they're denying God in this and I don't think that's what he's saying or Or saying that even God doesn't know. But they live believing that God, even though he may know, he doesn't see and doesn't care. They live believing in such a way that they've got a charmed life and God's not going to do anything to stop it. So verse 12, he says, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. And he sums up the picture. They have it easy. They amass a fortune. They've got it made in the sense they've got life by the tail. And look at me. Right. Poor me. You know, I've done everything. And envy has that way of leading, in a sense, to self-pity and self-pity digs that deeper. And spiritual struggles are real, but spiritual struggles can actually become worse and and they can actually become deeper when we allow envy and we allow things like self-pity to move us into those places. Verse 13 and 14. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've punished every morning. They get a free pass. I pay for everything. In fact, not only does my goodness not pay, 
but it actually causes greater suffering. And then I look at verse 15, and it's very interesting here. There's a caution. There's a warning that he gives in verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have portrayed your children or a generation. Isn't that kind of interesting? Here he is, this person who's going through this struggle. Struggles are real. I think it's important that you get honest about the fact that there are fears and and there's times of disappointment. It's not wrong to talk about those things, but they can get deepened by the way we respond to them. But he, in one sense, makes this little point that I think is important for our age. In Asia, I'm very much a product of of sincerity and authenticity and genuineness because I think you'll know that I, I want to be, here's who I am. I wear my heart a bit on my sleeve. Well, a lot on my sleeve. Anyway, um, but he makes a certain point here. He says, you know what? It is really important that at one point I chose to have some boundaries. It's, it, it was important that even though this doubt was real and I was facing these spiritual struggles, that I didn't necessarily give voice to them at that point in my life. Because there are appropriate times to share them. And resolved at this point to struggle internally. I'm sure he may have brought a few friends in along, which I think is important and wise. But he chose not necessarily to voice them to a group that could have harmed them. And I really think it's important at times. And I I do believe that when you go through difficult times, it's really important that you share them with others. But there are appropriate contexts and places and people in which to share those. And so he says, when I tried to understand all this, I kept things quiet. It became so oppressive to me that I had to do something. In a sense, reason didn't work. I couldn't understand this on my own. There was a sense that I had to do something. And he did that which led him to what I call from reason to revelation, a place where he was humbly positioned to have some kind of Intervention in his situation. Spiritual struggles often subside in the presence of God. Verse 17. He said, when I tried to understand this, it was impressed with me till. You can underline that until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I began to get perspective. I understood their final destiny. And in his struggle, he he encountered God. In a sense, he took his eyes off others. He was saying, God, I, I just keep looking out there and I see this. And I, I didn't go ahead and share this at an inappropriate time. I began to wrestle with it in my own heart. And I took this wrestling to you. In fact, it says that he, he entered the sanctuary. The, the language here is very interesting. The word translated sanctuary literally is the word sanctuaries. It's a plural. And often in the Hebrew, in order to, to make something um, more intense or to give it a sense of majestic quality to it, they'll make it a plural. So there's the idea that he didn't go into a bunch of sanctuaries, but he actually went into the sanctuary. And in that sanctuary, he met God. That's what his point is. If I was to give it the Meyer paraphrase, I would put it this way. He went to church and at church he had an encounter with God. You can go to church. You can go into your uh, into a place by yourself, walk, if you do, through nature in different places and have no experience. But you can go into these places where you humble your heart and you seek God. And when you do that, you can encounter God. And that's what, in a sense, he's saying. He went to church and he didn't just go to church, sing a bunch of songs. He didn't go to church and just hear a message. He went to church. And when he went to church in that sense, he actually encountered God. He took the spiritual struggle and he said, God. 
I don't get it. I don't understand it. But he doesn't tell us how many times he went either. The idea is that he continued. He continued and he said, God, you have to help me. You have to give me some sense of understanding. And in that place, he saw the sovereign, almighty, living God as a result of seeing him. He saw everything differently. Know how everything is different now at this point. His mood changes. There is now an air of gratefulness. And in fact, there are four things that I want you to to learn that he learned in this process that allowed him to move from a place of envy and self-pity and disappointment and despair to a place where now he had a sense of gratefulness in heart. He was thankful. He had seen God. He had gone into the sanctuary and in that sanctuary he met with God. And in meeting God, now he saw things from God's perspective. And the first thing he was thankful for is he realized this. Appearance is not reality. Appearance isn't reality. Our soundbite culture seldom gives the real story, right? Verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. What a change of perspective from what he just had said. He once thought they were on slippery ground, that he was on slippery ground. Now he sees that they're the ones about to slip and slide away. You see, what you see may not be reality. What appears when you look at the lives of someone else, you don't know what's really going on. And beyond that, here's the more important thing. What appears in your own life may not be what's really going on. Do you know what often happens when you go through those times of struggle? It's in those deep times of struggle that I think your faith becomes its purest, right? It's easy to walk and to have faith when things are going well, right? When things are going well, you feel happy, you want to sing, and you you, you see things in such bright colors, and you don't have that same angst in your spirit. But when things go bad, and you don't have those kind of props, that's when you have to believe when you can't see anything around you. And what God is often doing is this. What appears to be may not be what's really going on. Because in God's estimation, as you turn to him and as you struggle and you keep seeking him and you meet with God and he begins to reveal more of himself so that you begin to know that this goodness of God is in his character and his relationship with you. What he begins to do is to is to build your faith, which is of greater worth than what gold. That's what's really going on. And so in his heart, he began to become thankful for he saw that what their destiny truly was and their appearances that it looked like in this time in this life weren't really the way it was. And he began to realize what was going on within him. Before God was what was most important. And then he also realized the second thing, it's not over till it's over. You know, the, the old, it's not over till the fat lady sings that idea. He begins to realize that even though things may look really good for this time in their life and it it seems like they're, you know, the fat cats are getting it all. He began to realize that was just for a period of time. And in a sense, there's a warning not to be short sighted, to don't judge too quickly. Be careful not to get stuck in the moment. It says when he saw God, then he saw things as God did. He understood their final destiny. In verse 20, he says, as a dream, when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. What he once saw was so substantial and so real, their wealth, their pleasure, their life, 
is now but a mere shadow. Their life on earth was similar to a dream or a fantasy. He began to realize that God's scale of time was totally different from what he was looking at it at one point. He realized how quickly life passes. And he began to realize that that it's going to be so short because just like a person who, like a shadow that moves through and it's gone, or a dream that you have and you awake from, so often this life is just that long. And he also saw that their situation wouldn't always remain the same. In the sense of where you're at today won't be where you're at tomorrow. So that when you're in this time of spiritual struggle, sometimes in it you wonder if you'll ever come out of it. And God says, there will come a time you will come out of it. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit and better, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. He compared um, this envy and self-pity that he was in was like living like a fool, like a brute beast. Animals only live for the moment. They don't see the consequences. And then the last, the last three, two things. He says, God's got a hold of you, verse 23. Yet I'm always with you. You hold my, me by my right hand. When he realized that when he felt he was slipping and trying to hang on to God, you know what he really realized? That God had, got, had a hold of him. You hold me by my right hand. In a sense, he thought he was grabbing on to God and all. And when he got done and he saw it from God's perspective, he saw that God had a hold of him. And not only did God have a hold of him, but God was actually guiding him. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. This idea that God grasps and he guides and he glorifies. And the word glorify is important here. He's not talking necessarily here about the end, you know, the, the final state when he would come into the presence of God and be promoted into heaven. He's actually looking at this sense. He's saying, God, as I go through this spiritual struggle, there will come a time you'll actually promote me to a new place. And he realized that God had a hold of him and that God had a hold of him to bring him to this place that he had promised. And when you're in those times of spiritual struggle, you kind of go, I'll never come out of it. I'll never get there. And God is holding on to you. And he gives thanks to God because he knows that God is the one who is actually going to guide him, even though he doesn't see and understand God's guiding hand into this place of glory, which, again, isn't necessarily heaven, but it's this place he's prepared here, even on earth. In some cases, God has promised you something and he will provide it. God at one point said, this is a purpose I have in your life, and he will promote you to it. But a lot of times, in order to get to that place, God allows for you to go through a spiritual struggle, because in that spiritual struggle, he's allowing for you to see what's really real, his faith in him. And as you see that that faith is in him, you begin to get a better perspective of his time, and you realize his hand is on you to do a work through you. And then you come to this place, this final place of gratefulness, where you, where you realize that which is most important is your relationship with God. With God, he says, you have everything. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. Nothing I desire compares to you. So this Thanksgiving, 
wherever you're at, if you're in that time of spiritual struggle, it is true that the way things look may not be the way things really are. And it is really true that you are in a moment and that moment will change. And in this, God has his hand on you, guiding you, and he will bring you to this place. And you will begin to realize as you move through this, as your faith is purified, that the most important thing in your life is God. And that all other things really um, are dim and shadows in comparison to him. Fanny Crosby was stricken blind and she had all the reason in the world to feel like life was unfair. But she wrote songs of joy and peace in heaven. And one of the ones she wrote is, All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, hope here by faith in him to dwell. For I know, wherever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. Let's bow our heads. Father, it is true that at times we go through life and we struggle with the questions of of why. also know that Father when we seek you and we come into your presence there is a there is a, a place and a time where you come and you meet us and you make all things become dim and shadows in, in the reality of who you are and the love you have for us Thank you, Lord. Thank you.